Welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm a living history reenactor, and I'm a firm believer that the way history is often taught in schools is disjointed and disconnected. It shows a chain of events, sometimes, but it often fails to connect the little nuances that make history more understandable and more enjoyable. And that's the purpose of this podcast, to bring you those funny and sometimes crazy little things that bring history to life. If you listen to the Rebellions and Revolutions episode celebrating our Independence Day, you might recall that I said the whole reason we have a fur trade to reenact was because of a man named von Steuben, who wrote what's known as the Blue Book way back during the Revolutionary War. In turn, it gave a young soldier named William Henry Ashley the tools to create one of the most incredible supply and logistics systems in our young nation's history, which in turn created the Rocky Mountain Fur Company Rendezvous. And in the Rendezvous episode, you might recall that the whole reason the fur trade kicked off at all is because of the unprepared early sailors freezing their butts off in the cold Canadian wilderness, who then traded with the indigenous people for those really warm beaver robes, which blossomed into a network of beaver pelt trading for European trade goods, which in turn fueled a fashion trend in Europe. And by now, hopefully, (laughs) this podcast series has shown you that every event is connected to previous events in various ways. Let's look at the one thing that started the chain of events that led to the exploration of the New World, which led to the development of the fur trade, which led to the establishment of Canada and the United States as we know it today. Do you know what that one thing is? Spices. If you recall your middle school learning, you know that the spice trade between Europe and the East Indies was a very big deal. Since the beginning of human history, people have used the waterways and the open oceans to travel around trading what they have for what they want. So when people learned they could travel over to Asia and the East Indies for those cool exotic things like strange animals for the king's pet collection and spicy things that made their bland, nasty food taste better, you can bet they made every attempt to conquer the method of getting there. And while early explorers were extremely skilled at navigating the high seas, they had a lot of things going against them. First of all, they were still at the mercy of Mother Nature. Even today, humans are at the mercy of Mother Nature. But this is an era before the seven-day forecast, or the internet to Google what weather was going to be like in northern Canada, or even radar to tell you if you were sailing straight into the teeth of a nor'easter. Secondly, most of the world was yet undiscovered. If we were in New York today, and I told you to find your way to California with no map, no GPS, no directions, nothing, i just point and say, California is west of here, go that way. Could you do it? Do you know what environments you'll be facing on the way? Thirdly, many of them were just simply not prepared for the challenges they were about to face. If I told you to pack a bag because we're going on vacation, and we just threw a dart at a map to choose our vacation spot, would you know what to expect weather-wise without the internet? 
can I tell you how amazed I was to learn that there are parts of Africa that are cooler in the summertime than where I live in Pennsylvania? Who knew? Exploring new worlds was not a job for the faint of heart. Certain parts of the world are still today known for dangerous reefs and deadly currents. In certain places, the weather is still a very vicious foe. Ask anyone who lives in Yellowknife, Canada, or Juneau, Alaska, what their winters are like. And if you've never ridden out a hurricane or a tornado in a tent, let me tell you, it gives you a whole new perspective on things. Things that we often take for granted today were a very big deal back then. My son took a business trip west to Montana last winter, and it was so cold that people were concerned about the oil turning to sludge in their cars. Temperatures were consistently in the negative 40s. And some places in Canada today, like the Yukon Territory, still sees lows in the negative 70s and 80s. Imagine what it was like back in the day before warm insulated houses and thermal socks. Imagine what travel must have been like before snowmobiles and four-wheel drive vehicles. Basically, your options for traveling in the far reaches of snowy Canada were either by dog sled, on foot with snowshoes, or by the nearest waterway, assuming it was free of ice. So if a businessman in colonial Quebec wanted to trade with, say, Canton in China, where the maritime fur trade was booming and spices were piled all over the place, he would have to travel all the way down the Atlantic, around the southern tip of South America, through the treacherous currents around Cape Horn, and then back up the Pacific Ocean to Asia. Or he could travel east across the Atlantic Ocean, go all the way around Africa, past the treacherous currents of Cape Agulhas, and up through the Indian Ocean, around the South Pacific Islands, into the Pacific Ocean, and finally would reach China. We know from the awesome records that sea captains kept that it would take six weeks to sail straight from England to the colonies, with some trips taking up to three months. But to get from early Newfoundland to China was a minimum of six months' journey. Most trips took up to a year, and many never made it past those dangerous currents at the tip of Africa and South America. So everyone started looking for a shortcut that would make their trade easier. Several nations looked at that skinny land bridge connecting Central and South America. Today, it's the home of the Panama Canal. But as early as the 1500s, Spain's Holy Roman Emperor was trying to figure out how to get a ship over that 50-mile bit of land. The Kingdom of Scotland even took a stab at it in the late 1600s with their ill-fated Darien scheme. And the Americans came up with a decent plan in the 1700s, but they wanted Spain to pay for it, so that didn't happen. Eventually, all eyes turned away from the notion of going south of North America and turned to the concept of going north over the top of North America through what we today call the Arctic Circle. It was that desire to find a shorter, less treacherous route to the spice lands that created Canada, North America, and even the fur trade itself. So, if every major country was schlepping some sea captain and his crew into the wilderness to find this elusive Northwest Passage, why did it take them 400 years to find it? 
With many of these explorers, there was a fundamental lack of knowledge. First of all, many people back in this day believed that salt water could not freeze solid. Seawater can freeze, but only when the temperature is about 28 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Most of these seafaring people came from warmer climates, with only the Russians, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Icelanders, and the Scandinavians being sea ice savvy. Also, icebergs were believed to be all fresh water, and it was thought to be a reliable source of drinking water. The reason they believed this is because in seawater, the water itself freezes while the salt doesn't, giving the impression that only fresh water produces ice. Imagine their surprise when they found out that wasn't true. Secondly, since obviously salt water cannot freeze, it was believed that the Northwest Passage would always be clear of ice, which it most definitely was not true. Until our relatively recent global warming woes, there was a very small window of opportunity available to get through the passage most years. Any mariner caught in the freezing Arctic waters outside of that window of opportunity was destined for a really bad time. And depending on the year, that window might be four months long, four weeks long, or four days long. One mariner journaled that the spring thaw didn't come until September, while another captain was icebound for years before the ice thawed. And the final stumbling block for these early seafarers? Nobody knew what the world looked like. Remember that these guys are sailing across a very large world and seeing this territory for the first time. This is the same era where mariners believed that California was an island to the west of the North American continent, and you could sail completely around it. If a map did exist in this day, it didn't mean it was accurate. And if a map didn't exist, well... Let's put this in gamer terms. Let's say you're playing a video game and it's a brand new map you've never played it before. The map will be blackened out until you discover something. Then a small circle of light opens up, illuminating what you've discovered. Now you move in one direction or another. With each new discovery, another small circle of light opens up the map. Until you've walked all over the world and the entire thing is finally lit. Now you know where everything is. Every failed attempt to find that fabled thoroughfare opened the map a little bit more. But it's not like a game where the map is illuminated with each discovery. Because, well, there's no map. The early sea explorers were actually making the maps as they went. So let's say you're on a ship in Hudson's Bay. If you want to open the map, or rather, create it, you have to sail up and down into all the inlets and water sources coming into the bay, drawing a line resembling the coast as you go. You're still at the mercy of the weather and the wind, particularly if you're in a sailing ship and not rowing, and it would take weeks to chart several miles of coastline, and you and your crew would be limited in how many supplies you had on board. By the time you got half the map made, winter is fast approaching, and now you have to get back home before the weather turns against you. You could roll the dice and try to winter over where your ship is sitting when the seasons change. But you've never been here before. Do you know how rough the winter is here? Do you have enough supplies? And this is why it took decades 
for anyone to actually find the passage. But with every failed attempt, progress was made. So let's look at the major characters who dedicated years of, and sometimes their whole life, to the discovery of that shortcut to the East Indies. James Cabot was the first on record to attempt it for his patron, King Henry VII of England. Cabot left England in 1497, sailed around for a month, then landed in one of the northern capes of Newfoundland. Then he sailed straight back to King Henry and told him he found the coast of Asia. Cabot was sent back the following year in 1498, but he was never seen again. France then sent out their man, Jacques Cartier, in 1534 to find that same quote-unquote Asian shore. It took Cartier 20 days to reach Newfoundland, and he spent the next five months sailing around the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Then he sailed home to tell his king that he had found the Orient. Cartier returned the following year in 1535, and he arrived at the same Newfoundland Bay, and then he spent months sailing up and down the St. Charles River. Well, he decided to stay in this lovely oriental paradise in the new balmy Asian Isles for the winter. Only, it wasn't the balmy Asian Isles, it was Canada in the Arctic Circle. First, Cartier's ships became frozen solid to the St. Charles River. Then his men all came down with scurvy, and they began to starve as his supplies ran out. The local Iroquois saved these hopeless men, treating their scurvy and providing them with food and supplies to get them through the winter. When the spring thaw came in 1536, Cartier sailed out of the bay, kidnapping the Iroquois chief as he left. Now, Cartier did make one more trip in 1540, but any plans to find the Northwest Passage were completely forgotten by now. He now set his sights on establishing the first permanent settlement, and he ran into his old friends, the Iroquois, who were still salty about him stealing their chief. So he thought it best to continue up the river to build his settlement up north. Today, we call that little village the city of Quebec. The next brave soul we're going to talk about is Sir Francis Drake. He left his friend and employer, Queen Elizabeth I, in 1577. He was given two tasks. One, harass the Spanish and steal all their stuff. And two, find that elusive Northwest Passage. He'd been studying the efforts of the mariners who came before him, and he noticed that everyone kept trying the passage from the Atlantic side. So he decided he was going to try it from the Pacific side. He left England with five ships, and by the time he sailed around South America and into the Pacific Ocean a year later, he had one left. That ship ended up blown off course, and the ship was pushed all the way back to the southern tip of South America. So Drake made the best of it and fell back to his first task. He simply plundered his way through the Spanish settlements on the coast of the Pacific. How far north he made it is still debated. Some scholars think he actually made it as far north as British Columbia, while others aren't convinced. The next naval great to accept the challenge was Martin Frobisher. He and his brother John were involved in a privateering venture, meaning they were like pirates, but had a license from the English government to go, well, be pirates. 
This is how the governments in the early days annoyed and disrupted each other's trade, giving themselves a better chance of getting wealthy. And they also stole other countries' booty. Most of the maritime countries did it. And the government who issued the license got a cut of the booty. And as long as the privateers didn't kill anybody from their home country, everything was good. And this is where Frobisher had a problem. Martin Frobisher's fleet attacked a Spanish cargo ship, and 40 Englishmen were killed in the process. Frobisher was imprisoned, and once released on the promise that he would never own ships again, went out and bought two ships to go back into the privateering business. So they threw him back in jail, and they took his ships away. And as soon as he got out, he went privateering. After a few more times in and out of jail, Martin Frobisher convinced the government to give him a license to go find that fabled Northwest Passage. Likely the government was sick of the two years of listening to Frobisher beg, and maybe it figured it was a way to get rid of this troublemaker once and for all. Either way, the government sanctioned his trip. In 1576, it took him a little over a month to get across the North Atlantic, and when he finally got to the southern tip of present-day Greenland, he mistook it for Friesland, which is a place that actually is a fable, and a storm hit and sunk one of his three ships. The crew on the second ship said, nope, hard pass, and they turned tail and went straight back to England. In that third ship, Martin Frobisher sailed into the mouth of Frobisher Bay. A few of his men were out and about on the sea ice exploring when they came upon some local Inuit people. Frobisher had told them, do not touch the natives. But the men didn't listen, and the Inuit captured his men. After several fruitless attempts to find them, Frobisher boarded his ship for the long journey home. But before he did, Martin Frobisher looked down on the ground, and there was a cool rock lying there. He'd never seen anything like it before, so he filled his pockets with these weird little rocks and took them for souvenirs. When he got back to England, he showed one of the rocks to the Queen's alchemist, who very excitedly stated that the rocks were filled with gold. So Queen Elizabeth sent him back for more. She equipped him with several ships and much more manpower, and he arrived at Frobisher's Bay in 1577. They filled the ships with oars and left for England a month later, kidnapping an Inuit family as they pulled out of town. Once more, the queen sent him back, this time with 15 ships and hundreds of men. And this time, Frobisher was given a second task, besides making her filthy rich. He was to set up a permanent settlement before leaving fully loaded with these ore. However, Martin Frobisher landed in the wrong place. He had mistakenly sailed up Hudson Strait, thinking he had found the Northwest Passage by accident. He was wrong, and eventually gave up, and went back to reconnect with the bay that he'd named after himself. He did try to establish the settlement, and he did fill his ships to the decks with oars. But by the end of the month, there was so much dissension among the crew that nobody wanted to stay in the colony. They all grumpily sailed back to England with their ships and their pockets full of rocks. Special foundries had to be built to smelt these foreign ores, and tons and tons of coal drove the furnaces that would get the gold out of those ores. 
And by now, there was tons of ores piled about everywhere, waiting for the gold to be extracted. And here's the irony. After five years of trying to melt those rocks, it was discovered that they were absolutely worthless and contained no gold at all. I'm not sure what the Queen or the public opinion of the day thought of Martin Frobisher, but I do know that his descendants would return to Canada again in the near future, and they would help create the Northwest Fur Company. Now, a few years later, in 1583, one of the guys who backed that disastrous rock-collecting field trip to Newfoundland approached Queen Elizabeth I. His name was Sir Humphrey Gilbert. He wanted to be the guy who started that new colony in the Queen's wilderness. Gilbert sailed to Newfoundland, claimed it for the Queen, and despite the fact that many different nationalities were now setting up villages for fishing in this area, he proceeded to levy taxes against them for using England's fishing grounds. I'm not sure how well that he was received, because he would soon return home without setting up his colony. In 1583, another brave seafarer named John Davis approached Queen Elizabeth and said, Oh, oh, send me, send me. No, actually, it took him two years of begging before he wore down the government and they issued him a license to go. And in 1586, he sailed into the Arctic with four ships and began to explore the strait that would someday bear his name. He made friends with the local Inuits, and he didn't kidnap any of his new friends when he sailed out of the bay although his new friends did steal one of his anchors before he left. He returned to England claiming success, and the log that he created of that journey became the Bible for sea captains for the next hundred years to come. In fact, he was so skilled a navigator, he invented a new tool called the Davis Quadrant that would improve seafaring for decades. John Davis did take another stab at the Northwest Passage in 1591 on a new ship named the Discovery, and he almost had it. He was so very close, but weather forced him to return to England before he realized just how close he was. A company was then formed with the express purpose of trading with the East Indies. It was named, you guessed it, the East India Company. And this new company hired a shipbuilder and navigational wizard to take a stab at finding the Northwest Passage. His name was George Weymouth, and in 1602, he sailed a ship named the Discovery some 300-plus miles into what would become the Hudson Strait. In fact, it was the same ship Discovery that John Davis had arrived in years before. Unfortunately, by the time George Weymouth arrived, his men were all terribly ill, and he had to turn around and head back to England. As a side note, the ship Discovery would be the same ship that delivered the first colonists to Virginia to their new home of Jamestown in 1607. She was then used again on a supply mission for Captain John Smith as he explored and mapped the Chesapeake Bay region. She even took a supply run to Bermuda before being blown off course and ending up in Newfoundland, after which she gladly returned to England. And then the famous Henry Hudson set sail in the same ship Discovery in 1610. He was swept by the tides right into the strait that today bears his name. He spent weeks exploring the area and creating incredibly detailed maps. 
Then he traveled south into James Bay, and within two weeks found himself completely frozen in. When the spring thaw came in 1611, his men wanted to go home. But Henry Hudson insisted on pushing on, hoping to find that the bay would lead him west and into that mysterious northwest passage. So his men kicked him out. They put Hudson, his son, and anyone else who thought it was a bad idea to mutiny into a small boat, and they left without them, and the men were never seen again. Now, in 1612, one year after Henry Hudson was set adrift, a Welsh officer with the Royal Navy named Thomas Button set out to find the Lost Mariner. In fact, two of Button's crew were with the mutineers who set Hudson to sea in the first place. Button had two ships, the Resolution and, you guessed it, the Discovery. The Resolution was crushed by ice flows and it sank. But with the Discovery, Thomas Button continued to explore the west and north coasts of Hudson's Bay. He did discover an opening in the northwest corner of the bay, and he went, Nah, that can't be it, and he turned and left. What he didn't realize was, that was it. He was so close. In 1615, a captain named William Baffin set sail for the Arctic Circle in a ship named, wait for it, the Discovery, now on its fifth journey into this frozen land. Baffin was convinced that Thomas Button had been wrong and that the entrance discovered in the northwest corner was in fact the right one, but he couldn't find it. Eventually, he returned to England empty-handed. Once he got back home, though, he studied the maps again and he convinced himself that the entrance wasn't in Hudson's Bay at all, but north of there in the Davis Strait. So he went back and looked in the Davis Strait, and despite staring right at it, he couldn't find it. Not only had he missed the first entrance to the Northwest Passage, he missed the second one as well. It would take 50 years or so, but by 1670, that brand spanking new Hudson's Bay Company was set up, and newly recruited trappers were starting to explore the land around the bay. In 1688, a surveyor named Henry Kelsey mapped out much of the area. Hudson's Bay Company had a lot to gain by knowing the terrain in which they were setting up shop. And in 1771, they hired another surveyor named Samuel Hearn to locate some copper mines that were reportedly situated on a river on the northwest side of Hudson's Bay. And while he was at it, find that darn golden passage to the northwest that would open up their trade opportunities. For the next two years and eight months, Hearn walked from Hudson's Bay to the Arctic Ocean and back, the first white man to ever do so. He concluded that the passage, if it even existed at all, had to be farther north. Then comes one of the most celebrated navigators to ever come out of the British Isles, Captain James Cook. This man had already had a very successful naval career, and then he retired as a very happy, wealthy man. But when the prospect of searching for the Northwest Passage came up, he came out of retirement and jumped at the chance. Now, most everyone had primarily tried to find the passage from the east, on the Atlantic side, except for Sir Francis Drake, who had not been successful. So Captain Cook decided to tackle the project from the Pacific Ocean side. On the way, he discovered the Hawaiian Islands, 
then proceeded up the west coast of America, drawing maps as he went. He continued this right up into the Aleutian Islands, before heading back to Hawaii to spend the winter lounging on the beach. Except an argument broke out between Cook's crew and the Hawaiians, and Cook was killed. He never got to see the Northwest Passage or his beloved England again. A few years later, a young buck was hired by the Hudson's Bay Company as an indentured clerk. His name was David Thompson. By 1790, he was working as an HBC trader in the wilderness. And by 1794, he had worked his way up to being a surveyor. This guy's story is amazing, and I promise he will get his own episode. By the end of his illustrious career, he had traveled 56,000 miles and mapped out more than 1.9 million square miles of North America. It's because of David Thompson that the wilderness was known and understood by so many of the fur traders and trappers. It was he that mapped out the lands that no white man had ever seen before, a full one-fifth of the continent. And it was that incredible feat that would inspire future explorers like Alexander Mackenzie, who would become the first man to traverse from the east coast of the continent to the west coast in 1793. He will also have a dedicated episode coming soon. But know that Lewis and Clark's claim to have been the first to traverse from the east coast to the west won't happen for another ten years. Mackenzie beat them to it. While neither man found the actual passage, they both did so much to contribute to the knowledge of the region. And it's both men's journals and maps and exploration notes that would feed the continued search for this shortcut. Now, in 1818, a mariner named Sir John Ross sailed into Baffin Bay, what would someday become the gates to the Northwest Passage. And he spent a few weeks sailing around looking for the elusive passage, and as the ice was building up around him, he sailed right past it, seeing no break in the mountains that would suggest an opening. What he had experienced was a mirage, and so he left. Unfortunately, his crew were positive that the mountains needed further exploration and that he was dead wrong, but it was too late. He was determined to go home. Well, one of the crew on that ship, a man named Sir William Parry, was convinced that John Bross had cut and run way too early, and he was determined to find that passage. So he sailed back into the Arctic frozen land in 1829 and he quickly became firmly entrenched in the ice. For the next three years, he and his men would use handsaws, shovels, and steel poles to try to break their ship free. Three years. All those heroic efforts gained them only a few miles. The Inuit helped them survive by trading supplies, but the Inuit were a nomadic people, and they weren't a constant presence and the men suffered a horrendous ordeal. Ultimately, three men did die. The surviving crew members were eventually rescued from the ice flows by a whaling ship, and they returned to England as heroes. The next man we're going to meet is a very interesting individual. His name was Sir John Franklin, and he joined the Royal Navy at the age of 12. He served valiantly during the Napoleonic Wars, as well as the War of 1812. Just a month before the War of 1812 was over, he was injured, and he spent a few years recovering. 
When he returned to the service, he was given command of the HMS Trent. And the following year, he was hired by the Hudson's Bay Company to find those same copper mines that Samuel Hearn was supposedly trying to find 20 years earlier. And while Samuel Hearn was now famous for snowshoeing his way across the frozen wasteland, Franklin's party was starving to death. The trip did not start off well. Franklin fell into the freezing waters of a swift icy river and nearly drowned before one of his men hauled him out a few hundred yards downstream. And that pretty much set the tone for the next three years. At the end of it, 11 of those 20 men had succumbed to starvation and exhaustion. One of those who died was reportedly murdered by the other survivors and eaten. It's also suspected that other corpses were consumed as a matter of survival. When Franklin finally did make it home to England in 1823, he married an English poet named Eleanor Porden, and the couple welcomed their first child the following year. But Eleanor died shortly after of tuberculosis, and John Franklin went back to what he knew best, the sea. He signed up for a several-year trip exploring the Arctic Circle, and in 1825, he began journaling the incredible things he witnessed. In fact, he spent the winter in the village of Deline on the Great Bear Lake, which is in northwest of present-day Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. And he gave us the first account ever of the game of ice hockey. How cool is that? During the spring of 1826, he worked his way westward, intending to meet fellow explorer Frederick William Beachy, who was trying to find the passage from the western edge of the Arctic. After several hundred grueling miles, he gave up and turned around, only 150 miles short of that meeting place. After his return to England, he was named Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, which we today call Tasmania. A few years later, in 1843, he was unnamed Lieutenant Governor for some reason, and he went back to the sea once more. There was a little over 300 miles of Arctic coastline left unexplored, and the British government wanted John Franklin to go remedy that. He was given two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, and 129 men to crew them both. In 1845, the ships became hopelessly icebound, almost at the halfway point between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. And they stayed icebound for the next year. Starvation began to claim lives. Cannibalism and disease claimed more. By the end of 1845, it's believed that Franklin and over half the crew of 129 men had died. The survivors attempted to head south towards civilization on the Canadian mainland, but over the next 250 miles, they dropped from exhaustion and starvation. All died before reaching the northernmost outpost. The survivors had left stone cairns along the way, containing notes to any rescuers who might be looking for them. But by the time the rescue parties came, the men were all gone. The saddest part of that story, those survivors who fought their way south to find help had crossed the halfway point and walked into the Simpson Strait. They had done it. They'd found the Northwest Passage. And we'll never know if they realized their accomplishment. This was the worst disaster in the history of British polar exploration. 
on a journey in 1850 to find Franklin's doomed crew and ships, a mariner named Sir Robert McClure discovered the first navigable passage for ships through the Northwest Passage, though it was only accessible under ideal conditions. And he also suffered major setbacks with being iced in and having to traverse part of the way on foot. And eventually, he turned around and went back to safer ground. So he's often not given credit for the discovery. Many of their fellow mariners attempted to find the remains of Franklin and his crew. For years after, sea captains, friends, and scientists searched in vain. One of the most interesting search efforts was in 1852 by a man named Edward Belcher. He took five ships, including the HMS Resolute, and he entered the Arctic Circle in search of Franklin's doomed expedition. Four of the five ships quickly became icebound, and he abandoned them where they were parked. Later, one of those ships was recovered by an American whaling vessel, and it was returned to England. The ship was dismantled and recycled, and the timbers from the HMS Resolute went into three desks, including the Resolute desk now sitting in the Oval Office of our White House. The first man to truly traverse the Northwest Passage is a man named Roald Amundsen. In 1903, this Norwegian mariner and his crew spent three years making the trek. And they spent much of that time learning cold-weather survival skills from the local Inuit people. Six years later, Amundsen would put that new knowledge to good use when he discovered the South Pole. And 15 years after that, in 1926, he would be the first person to fly over the North Pole in an airship a semi-rigid dirigible like a Zeppelin. Now, some cool afterthoughts for anyone interested. The Discovery made a total of six trips into the Arctic for exploration. And for anyone interested, you can see an amazing replica of this ship, Discovery, at the Jamestown settlement near the historic site. Now, in 2014... Franklin's doomed ship, the Erebus, was discovered by underwater archaeologists. And two years later, in 2016, the terror was also found. The cold Arctic water stifled the growth of bacteria and other microbes that would quickly disintegrate a ship. So both of the ships appear to be set on the bottom, with much of the crew's belongings neatly intact. Some of the crew themselves have been recovered from the vessels. Others graves littered the southern trail toward civilization. I'll link a few sites for you on the website to explore more on the Franklin Expedition because it is an incredible story. The story of the Northwest Passage has always attracted those who share the explorer's passion for the unknown. And it was later immortalized in 1981 in a song by the incredibly talented Stan Rogers. In it, he says... Westward from the Davis Strait, tis there twas said to lie, the sea route to the Orient, for which so many died. Seeking golden glory, leaving weathered broken bones, and a long-forgotten lonely cairn of stones. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed exploring this famous sea route to the Orient. I also hope you'll listen to some of the other episodes and continue researching on your own. There are many links to resources on the webpage at FursAndFrontiers.com. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. I'll see you in a few weeks. Have a great weekend and keep your powder dry. Thank you.